New York City at the turn of the 20th century must have been thrilling. So much was happening as the concrete jungle of today began to take shape. Buildings rose higher, subway lines grew longer, then came the Stock Exchange, the Williamsburg Bridge, Macy's, for God's sake. Imagine watching it all happen around you, and maybe even getting lost in it. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who would love to experience the excitement of those times and take in those amazing landmarks when they were first created, but would also like to be back home in my own bed at the end of the day. Today, we'll put on our corsets and wide-brimmed hats and take a step back in time to New York City in the Gilded Age to meet Dorothy Arnold, a woman who went out to run some errands and never came home. The Arnold family of the Upper East Side of Manhattan were basically wealthy socialites whose main job was to just kind of be wealthy, come to breakfast fully clothed in, like, formal wear, entertain guests or go calling on neighbors, and then eat dinner at home in a tuxedo or beaded gown. Like Downton Abbey goes to America. The Arnold status was on par with that of the Rothschilds and Rockefellers of today, which is to say, filthy rich. Not like Jeff Bezos rich, but still able to get around paying income tax rich. Richer than you and I can ever hope to be. Incidentally, if you are that rich, please consider tipping me generously for my services. My Venmo is at Daisy Egan. Dorothy Arnold was the second of four children, born in 1885 to Mary Parks and Francis Arnold. Mr. Arnold was a perfume importer who boasted that he could trace his family line straight back to the Mayflower. Mary Parks was no financial slouch herself, having come from a prominent family that AmericanHeritage.com said was, quote, noted for its propriety and reticence, end quote. What precisely they were reticent about is not clear, but if I know anything about wealthy people, it was probably parting with their money. Anyway... After attending private schools and studying under the watchful eyes of tutors and governesses throughout girlhood, Dorothy went to Bryn Mawr College in Pennsylvania. Dorothy returned home after college to her family's Upper East Side home, where, according to a 2016 New York Daily News article, she, quote, became a staple at elite social gatherings, attending the finest teas and chicest lit groups, end quote. You know, everything a college degree might train you for. Then again, what in the world might a degree in Latin and French actually train you for aside from speaking Latin and French? Despite her degree, Dorothy's real aspiration was to be a writer. Dorothy's parents were less interested in her career goals than in making sure she married well. Apparently, at this social echelon, marriage is less a meeting of hearts and more a meeting of bank accounts. But while Dorothy's parents were likely searching for the right business partner, or, I mean, husband for her, Dorothy had other ideas. While in Pennsylvania at Bryn Mawr, Dorothy met and began a relationship with George C. Griscom Jr., it's unclear how they met. Not only was Bryn Mawr a woman's college, Griscom lived in Pittsburgh, a four-hour drive away. Also, Griscom was nearly 20 years older than Dorothy. 
Despite his age, Griscom still lived at home with his parents. According to AmericanHeritage.com, George accompanied his parents when they traveled, and apparently his mother still bought all his shirts and ties. One could argue, I suppose, that these were different times, and adult, unwed children often lived at home, and look, maybe Griscom just had terrible taste in clothes, so his mom was like, Jesus, just let me do it. But whatever the case was, Dorothy knew her parents wouldn't be thrilled about her dating a 42-year-old dude who still lived at home and whose mommy still dressed him. So she kept the relationship a secret. In the summer of 1910, the Arnold family went to their summer home in York Harbor, Maine. In mid-September, Dorothy asked her parents if she could spend a week in Cambridge with her college buddy, Theodora Bates. Her parents granted her permission, and Dorothy left the family summer home in Maine on September 16th. But Dorothy didn't go to Cambridge. Like so many young people before and after her, she used her friend as an excuse to go do some hanky-panky with her boyfriend. In Boston, Dorothy met up with Griscom, who was already waiting for her at the Hotel Lenox. According to AmericanHeritage.com, the couple was seen together constantly over the next week. I want to pause here for a minute to point out how weird it is that in 1910, before there were TVs or cell phones, enough people knew who Dorothy Arnold was that they reported seeing her all over Boston. It's not like Dorothy was an actor or model. How people in Boston in 1910 knew who a socialite from New York City was is a mystery to me. But they did, and they were like, oh yeah, I saw her and her boyfriend all over the place that week. Griscom must have had a magic D, because Dorothy apparently saw fit to pawn $500 worth of jewelry for $60 to extend her trip with him in Boston. I mean, sure, she probably didn't really understand how money worked anyway, since she always had it and never had to do anything but ask her parents to get it. But 60 bucks for $500 worth of jewelry? That's some really piss-poor money management. Not only that, but Dorothy apparently used her real name and New York City address not only at the pawn shop, but at the hotel as well, and that's how her parents found out that she had been in Boston with Griscom instead of in Cambridge with Theodora. And they were not pleased. They told her she was forbidden from seeing Griscom. Once the Arnolds got back to New York City in October, Dorothy asked her father to rent her an apartment in artsy Greenwich Village. She argued that the village would be the perfect place for her to write. Her father apparently yelled, A good writer can write anywhere! and denied her. I mean, Virginia Woolf wrote a whole book about how important it is for women writers to have a space to write, and I'm trying to write this while my nine-year-old wails on the drums and sings music for a sushi restaurant at the top of his lungs, and it's challenging. But sure, Dad, whatever you say. Anyway. Confined to her probably palatial Upper East Side townhouse, Dorothy spent the next few weeks working on a short story called Poinsettia Flames and promptly submitted it to the literary magazine McClure's. When Dorothy told her family about the story, apparently their response was to tease her mercilessly, which is infuriating. Like, why? Why would you tease your loved one over pursuing their dreams? Who hurt you? And then McClure's rejected the story. I'm sure that went over like gangbusters in the family. 
But this wasn't the first time one of Dorothy's stories had been rejected for publication, so this didn't deter her. She went ahead and wrote another story called Lotus Leaves and submitted this one to McClure's as well. The fact that she persevered despite her family's mocking says something about Dorothy's determination and character. Writing is hard. Getting rejected is really hard. Sitting down to write again after being rejected is torture. In the midst of all this writerly activity, Dorothy decided to spend Thanksgiving in D.C. with her friend Theodora, who was teaching there. She got to D.C. late on the evening of Wednesday, the 23rd of November, 1910. The next day, Dorothy received an envelope by mail to Theodora's residence. Did you catch that? Dorothy somehow received mail addressed to her, not at her residence, delivered by the United States mail, as Theodora would later insist, on Thanksgiving Day, a national holiday, when the post office is closed. Even if Dorothy had arranged to have her mail forwarded while she was in D.C. for the long holiday weekend, it's unlikely it would have been delivered on Thanksgiving Day. To this day, no one knows what was in that package. Theodora thought it might have been the rejected manuscript of Lotus Leaves, but how in the world would whatever publication Dorothy had submitted to know that Dorothy was going to be in D.C.? Both Theodora and Dorothy's mother were surprised when Dorothy left D.C. early Friday morning. They'd both thought the plan was for Dorothy to stay in D.C. through the weekend. Apparently, Dorothy was like, nope, this was the plan all along. Nice gaslighting, girl. The next Monday, November 28th, Dorothy wrote a letter to Griscom, who was in Italy with his parents. In the letter, she wrote, Well, it has come back. McClure's has turned me down. Failure stares me in the face. All I see ahead is a long road with no turning. Which is like, yeah, girl, welcome to the writer's life. But it was the next sentence that would become a flashing warning sign. Mother will always think an accident has happened. Whatever she might have meant by that, we'll never know. By the time this ominous sentence could raise alarm, Dorothy was gone. On the morning of December 12th, 1910, Dorothy headed out for a day of shopping. Her plan was to buy a gown for her sister's debutante ball. She wore a blue tailored suit, carried a satin handbag and a giant silver fox muff, and wore a hat that AmericanHeritage.com described as resembling, quote, nothing so much as an overturned dishpan, which I thought was rude. But then I googled it and realized that bedpan would have been a more apt description. Anyway, the point is she wasn't exactly inconspicuous. Dorothy's mother asked if she wanted company, and Dorothy told her not to bother. She said she would call her mother if she found a dress she liked so her mother could come look at it before she bought it. Again, this woman was 25 years old. Dorothy left around 11.30 a.m. It's generally assumed she had $25 with her, about $760 in today money. But that information comes from knowing she had withdrawn $36 from the bank the day before and had taken some girlfriends to lunch and a matinee. $11 for lunch and a matinee sounds like a real deal, until you realize $11 was the equivalent of nearly $350 today. It's possible she'd been stashing away cash somewhere and had it with her. No one really knows what she did and didn't have with her when she left the house that morning, including whether she might have had a change of clothes stashed away in her giant muff. 
A muff is a hand warmer, folks, not the other thing you're thinking. Come on. By all accounts, Dorothy was in a good mood when she left the house. It was a blustery cold day and the sidewalks were icy. Despite that, Dorothy walked 20 blocks down to 59th and 5th, where she stopped to buy a half pound of chocolates. Now that's my kind of gal. After buying the chocolate, she walked another 32 blocks to Brentano's bookstore, where she bought a collection of short romance stories called An Engaged Girl's Sketches. Outside the bookstore, Dorothy ran into her friend Gladys King, who happened to have her RSVP for Dorothy's sister's debutante ball, which she handed over, apparently while joking about postage saved. Oh, good. Now I shan't have to spend the two cents on postage. <laughs> we have fun. Simpler times, folks. Simpler times. After a chat, Gladys excused herself to meet her mother for lunch. It was 2 p.m., Gladys later said she turned around at the corner of 27th Street to wave a final goodbye to Dorothy. For all anyone knows, that was Dorothy's last encounter with anyone. After this, it seems, Dorothy Arnold blooped right out of existence. When Dorothy failed to show up for dinner that night, her family began to worry. So they called around to friends, asking if maybe she'd dropped in for an unexpected visit. But no one had seen her. The family asked everyone they spoke to for discretion, which is understandable. But then, when family friend Elsie Henry called back around midnight to see if Dorothy had turned up, Mrs. Arnold replied, yes, she's here. When Elsie asked if she could speak to Dorothy, Mrs. Arnold told her that Dorothy had gone to bed with a headache. Okay, so that was an odd choice. Why in the world the family would choose to lie that Dorothy had come home instead of making sure as many people as possible knew she hadn't is a serious mystery. But it was only the first weird choice the Arnold family would make in the drama unfolding around them. The next morning, when Dorothy still had not turned up, the family decided not to alert the police because, according to allthatsinteresting.com, they feared a media spectacle that would bring shame to the family. I mean, okay, but also your daughter is missing. You know what would be worse than a possible shameful scandal? Dragging your heels and possibly losing your chance of finding your missing daughter alive. But sure, go ahead and save face. That seems more important. So, rather than report Dorothy missing to the police, the Arnolds called John S. Keith, who, in addition to being a junior partner at the local law firm and the family lawyer, had also accompanied Dorothy to a few lectures and dances. When Keith arrived at the Arnold home, he poked around Dorothy's room looking for any clues as to where she might have disappeared to. He found no missing clothes except those she'd been wearing the day before some letters from Griscom with foreign postmarks, two folders from transatlantic steamship companies, and a mound of burned papers in the fireplace. Her brother suggested it might have been her rejected story. He probably left out the part about how the family teased her about said rejected story. The Arnolds wondered if maybe Dorothy and Griscom had eloped, even though it seems they knew Griscom was in Italy at the time. Maybe they thought Dorothy had fled to Italy in order to elope. At any rate, they waited another three days to reach out to Griscom by telegram, writing, Dorothy is missing. Cable if you know anything. Griscom replied immediately, no, absolutely nothing. 
which seems like a pretty casual response to finding out the woman you love is missing. Like, maybe throw in an I'm sorry, or please let me know if there's anything I can do to help, or even just a sad face emoji, something. The Arnolds apparently were similarly unimpressed with Griscom's reply, and Mrs. Arnold and her son went all the way to Italy to confront him, taking their lawyer Keith with them. Is it just me, or does this seem like overkill? Like, you go from not telling the police your daughter is missing to sailing all the way to Italy to talk to her boyfriend? Call me callous, but it sounds to me like maybe someone just wanted to take an Italian holiday. The Arnolds and Keith demanded Griscom hand over any letters he might have gotten from Dorothy. Some sources say he refused to hand them over until Keith punched him in the face, but Griscom denied this happened. The Arnolds took the letters back to the States and again decided not to share any information with the police. They still hadn't even alerted the police that Dorothy was missing. A whole month had gone by in which no one knew where Dorothy was, and the Arnolds still hadn't made an official report. Keith, meanwhile, took it upon himself to investigate, searching morgues, hospitals, and jails. He even went down to Philadelphia to search, which honestly makes no sense if Griscom himself wasn't in Philadelphia at the time. Also, Dorothy Arnold was a well-known figure. Remember people all the way up in Boston knew who she was? Why in the world did anyone think she would be sitting in a jail or laying in a morgue or hospital unidentified? It makes literally no sense. Then again, neither does not telling the police your daughter has been missing for more than a month. Keith's amateur sleuthing turned up goose eggs, and the Arnold family finally decided to turn to a professional. Not the police. Still, not the police. No, instead, they hired an actual private investigator from the Pinkerton Detective Agency. The new PI did what the Arnold family had refused to do this whole time and contacted the police. They sent out a description of Dorothy along with an announcement for a $1,000 reward for any information leading to her return to police departments all over the country. According to AmericanHeritage.com, the NYPD would have received the circular, quote, but it stood firmly on protocol, refusing to act in the Dorothy Arnold matter until appealed to directly, end quote. I'm sorry, what now? Did it not occur to anyone that maybe Dorothy's family had something to do with her disappearance? What in the actual fuck was going on here? While the police were like, uh, what do you want us to do about it? The P.I. decided to follow the clue of the folders from the transatlantic steamship companies Keith had found on Dorothy's desk the morning after she went missing. Pinkerton agency investigators in Europe were dispatched to meet every boat that came into port to see if Dorothy was aboard. By this time, Frances Arnold finally told the police that Dorothy had been missing for six weeks. Still, it took police two days to convince the Arnolds that getting the word out was their best chance in finding Dorothy. On January 25th, Mr. Arnold reluctantly called a press conference and announced... Assuming that she walked up home through Central Park, she could have taken the lonely walk along the reservoir. There, because of the laxity of police supervision over the park, I believe it quite possible that she might have been murdered by garrotters and her body thrown into the lake or reservoir. Such atrocious things do 
happen, though there seems to be no justification for them. Which is an oddly specific theory, if you ask me. Why would anyone assume she walked through Central Park? She went from 79th Street on the east side to 27th Street on the east side, as far as anyone knows. She wouldn't have needed to go into the park at all. Also, this assumes no one saw her between 27th Street and the park, when at least two sources reported seeing her on the walk downtown. No one saw her walk back up, and yet somehow she ended up murdered in the park? I don't know. Also, the reservoir was frozen solid the night Dorothy went missing, and so presumably was every other body of water in the park. When one reporter asked about the rumors that Mr. Arnold forbid Dorothy from keeping company with men, Mr. Arnold apparently yelled, It is not true that I objected to her having men call at the house. I would have been glad to see her associate more with young men than she did, especially some young men of brains and position, one whose profession or business would keep him occupied. I don't approve of young men who have nothing to do. This was taken to be a dig at Griscom. So, word was finally out. A piece in the Times the next day said, quote, There is no trace of insanity in the family, and the young woman had never shown signs of a troubled mind, although she was devoted to books and spoke several languages, end quote. You know, because nothing points to a troubled mind more than a woman who likes to read and could speak several languages. My lord. The police finally got to work, doing what they should have been able to do a month and a half earlier, and managed to clear, quote, every man with whom Miss Arnold was known to have been upon friendly terms, end quote. Then, just a day or so later, on January 28th, the Times ran another story with this cryptic passage. It was learned last night on authority that in all probability, Miss Dorothy Arnold will return home today, or at the most in a very few days. From the same authoritative source, it was learned that Miss Arnold has been seen in the city within the last 15 days, though she has been missing from her home 47 days. It was also stated last night that the whereabouts of Miss Arnold's confidant is known to the police, and the police maintain, as they have all along believed, that there has been no crime committed that calls for investigation by them. They counted that it is the case of a missing person, which does not mean she has been kidnapped or abducted or taken from her home against her will. End quote. Say what? They provide not a single hint as to who this confidant was, where they were getting their information, or even just what the hell they were even talking about. The Arnolds and the NYPD were at major odds, with the family certain Dorothy was dead and police being like, nah, 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 she'll turn up, you'll see. Despite the fact that every neighboring city and most steamships between New York City and Europe had all been searched with not a clue turning up. The police's proof that Dorothy was still alive? They hadn't found her body. That, um, that won't hold up in court there, Bob. Then, on February 3, 1911, Dorothy's brother reported a tip to police in Philadelphia that his sister had gotten into a car on East 79th Street the day she went missing and that the car had been headed to Philly. How the tipster would have known where the car was headed, who knows, and why she would get into a car headed for Philly with just a box of chocolates and a romance novel? The tip, it goes without saying, led nowhere. 
At some point in the first week of February, the Arnold family received a postcard postmarked from New York City that read, I am safe. It was signed Dorothy. But this was just one of many red herrings in the case, including false sightings throughout the country and two ransom letters demanding $5,000 each for Dorothy's return. Police followed every lead that came in, and they all led nowhere. Then on February 11th, Griscom returned from Italy and announced to the press that he and Dorothy had been engaged for months. Newspapers quoted him saying, I really believe that I should not say anything about my relations with Miss Arnold, but I am willing to say I am deeply in love with the young lady and hope to wed her if she is alive. I might add an expression of hope that she is alive and safe and that she will consent to marry me. Mr. Arnold was so opposed to even the idea that his daughter would have entertained the notion of marrying Griscom that he refused to believe that Griscom even made the statement, accusing the press of making it up. Finally, on February 25th, the NYPD did an about-face and announced that they now believe Dorothy to be dead. Why? Nobody. That's right. The evidence that led them to announce that she was definitely still alive was the same exact evidence that led them to announce that she was definitely dead. According to a piece in the Times from that day, quote, Commissioner Flynn is now convinced that if the girl is alive, she would have communicated with some member of her family or some friend long before this. He thinks it inconceivable that after the publicity that has been given this case and in view of the grief of her father, that she or any other girl in a similar position would have remained quiet, end quote. So basically exactly what her family had been saying from the beginning, or rather from six weeks after she went missing, when they finally went to the police for help. The cause of death, police said, was most likely suicide. Never mind that she wasn't the least bit depressed and never expressed even a passing thought of suicide. Never mind that she would have had to have also performed a disappearing act with her dead body. Never mind that there was literally nothing pointing to a suicide, except maybe that cryptic sentence in her letter to Griscom saying her mother would think it was an accident. But if she meant that about killing herself, why did she say just her mother would think it was an accident? And also, wouldn't Griscom have written back to be like, please don't kill yourself? Or at the very least have told the Arnolds once she was missing that she hinted at killing herself? And who buys a brand new novel and kills themselves before they can read it? And so, Dorothy's disappearance was a true mystery, with not even a glimmer of a sliver of a shred of any helpful information. She was just, bloop, gone. And in her absence, the theories began to collect. Some believe that Dorothy did kill herself. Their breadcrumbs were that after being rejected by McClure's, refused by her father for an apartment in Greenwich Village, and missing Griscom, she fell into a suicidal despair. Griscom's cousin had recently killed himself by throwing himself off the deck of a transatlantic ocean liner. Could that suicide have inspired Dorothy? She had those folders from transatlantic steamships on her desk, after all. And while no transatlantic ships had Dorothy on their manifests any time around the time in question, it was possible she leapt from the Fall River Sidewheeler, a large East Coast ship that apparently didn't keep a passenger list, and so was a popular method of suicide at the time. For that matter, she could have run away on that ship. 
with none of her belongings and just a box of chocolates and a novel. But again, while it's certainly possible for people to hide their despair all the way up until the point where they kill themselves, Dorothy showed no indication of depression. She was in a cheery mood the morning she went missing. Also, where was her body? Also, also, wouldn't it have been highly likely that someone from the Fall River Sidewheeler would have seen her and come forward, especially given that reward money? Mr. Arnold believed Dorothy had been kidnapped and killed. He told reporters that on January 26th, a man named Edward N. Legg from Philadelphia randomly appeared at his doorstep with this story. I was out in front of the Hotel Bellevue, Stratford, Philadelphia, one night in December, when two chauffeurs ran their cars together by accident almost at my side. The cars were not much damaged, and the chauffeurs turned out to be old acquaintances. One said to the other, I brought a girl over from New York last night. How'd you do that? The other asked. Why, I pretended that a woman had fainted in my car and asked the girl if she would step in and see if she could do anything for her. Then I sped away. What are you going to do with her? Queried the other chauffeur. I'm going to keep her a while and see if I can't make someone pay me for the trouble. Do I really need to follow this insane story up by telling you it never panned out to anything? No. No, I don't. Then there was the man in prison who said he was paid almost $400 to help dispose of Dorothy's murdered body. He mentioned three men he called Doc, Lewis, and T, and claimed he buried Dorothy as instructed in a cellar near West Point. But after excavating several cellars in the area the prisoner indicated she would be, police came up with nothing. Others believe Dorothy may have slipped and hit her head and simply forgotten who she was. Sure, but this theory requires all of New York City to also have slipped and hit their heads and forgotten who Dorothy Arnold was. The most pervasive theory about what happened to Dorothy is that she died as the result of an illegal abortion. In 1914, police discovered an underground clinic run by a Dr. C.C. Meredith, Dr. H.F. Lutz, and Nurse Lucy Orr in Pittsburgh. The clinic was ominously dubbed the House of Mystery by virtue of its remote location that was straight out of a Dracula movie, down a long, dark road off some craggy bluffs overlooking the Ohio River. Investigators determined that another young woman had died at the hands of doctors Meredith and Lutz and, once arrested, found strong evidence that Dorothy Arnold had met the same fate. The clinic apparently contained two furnaces, both large enough to accommodate, say, a human body. A piece in the Times in 1914 stated, quote, There is lacking absolute proof that Miss Arnold was ever an inmate of the isolated mansion, but District Attorney Jackson himself is inclined to believe that there is considerable weight attached to the statements made by Dr. Lutz and by a local physician's unnamed woman patient, who said that while she was an inmate of the house, she saw Dorothy Arnold there. The District Attorney said this afternoon that Dorothy Arnold, the missing New York heiress, died in the House of Mystery is the conclusion I have reached after considering the evidence I have at hand. It is possible that subsequent developments will disprove this theory, but at present, all the evidence I have indicates that that was Arnold's fate, end quote. 
Unfortunately, this is the theory that seems most likely to me. It makes sense that Dorothy wouldn't have felt safe telling her parents she was pregnant, especially if she was pregnant by Griscom, who they obviously hated. And, as we all know, just because abortion is illegal doesn't mean people won't try to get them. It just makes them exponentially more deadly. When access to health care is restricted, people will go to any length to get the care they need. And unfortunately, not everyone who might offer that care is qualified or morally upstanding. And then, suddenly and quite out of nowhere, New York City Police Captain John Ayers gave a press conference about something else entirely, in which he announced, All I can say is that it has been solved by the department. Dorothy Arnold is no longer listed as a missing person. Probably I should not have mentioned the case, as it is a strictly confidential one in the department. When asked if that meant Dorothy was found either dead or alive, Ayers replied... I couldn't discuss that without violating a confidence, and you wouldn't want me to do that, would you? Her parents have suffered sufficiently, and I wouldn't say anything to stir up the case. I have been asked a great many times by newspaper men what became of Dorothy Arnold, and I have always refused to answer. And then the next day, Ayers was like, say what? Oh, no, I didn't say that. My tongue slipped and I was misquoted. Seriously, he said his tongue slipped and he was misquoted. But that was it. Whether or not police really had solved the case, they never shared definitively one way or the other with Dorothy's family. And they were left to believe what they'd believed all along, which was that Dorothy had met a fatal end either the day she went missing or shortly thereafter. Unfortunately, they would never know for sure. The moral of the story, strangers, is... Don't, uh, make sure you ask your, I mean, honestly, I don't know. I guess if there's a moral here, it's to go to the authorities immediately when someone goes missing. And, you know, don't put your reputation above the well-being of your children. But if I have to tell you that, you're beyond my help. Like Dorothy was beyond the help of her parents, lover, friends, NYPD, and the press. Who knows what happened to Dorothy Arnold and who she could have become? Those answers swirl amongst the noise of New York City to this day. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, two naval officers on a surveillance mission over the waters of San Francisco go up, up, and away in a blimp. The blimp comes back down, and the men are nowhere to be found. The ghost blimp of 1942. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca D. Gregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and researched by Jess McKillop. Our audio editor and mixer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Luther Creek and Ryan Garcia. 
Our social channels are run and managed by Amy Sapp. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts and share on socials with your friends. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUpod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. Plus, join me Mondays at 3 Eastern on the SNU Instagram page for my Insta Live each week. Thank you.